turn in Matthew chapter 2. Our sermon text this morning will be Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. This is the very word of God. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon our time in his word. Father, make it that we hear your word. Uh, you have spoken plainly. But it is not difficult for us to hear, for the hearing is done by faith. And it is a faith 
which the Spirit gives and upholds and sustains and grows. And so we acknowledge that we are utterly dependent upon you, O Lord, uh, to speak and to make known your word and to press that word upon our hearts. We would desire to marvel at the beloved Son, the one who bore our griefs and sorrows to bring us true healing. Magnify your name, O Lord. Grant to me the words to declare the blessedness, the ineffable blessedness that we now receive by faith, but one day by sight. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I've enjoyed singing some of the excellent Christmas hymns. Uh, some of you have commented, are we allowed to sing Christmas hymns in October? It's legal. I checked with the denomination. <laughs> Worship is under the care of the elders. There's some incredibly rich hymns. Hark the Herald Angel Sings is one of my favorite. I've had the occasion to tell some of you that second verse. You're not going to find a better line uh, than that second verse. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You could spend a long time trying to come up with lines as good as that. You're not going to. Uh, but not all Christmas hymns are good. <laughs> we will not ever sing away in the manger. <laughs> I don't care for a way in the manger. And there's one reason. It's just this one line. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I think I understand what the hymn is trying to do. Uh, obviously, this was no ordinary child. This was an extraordinary child. And his birth is attended with this incredible burst of joy. You think of the angels declaring the good tidings which have dawned. We heard it when the Magi followed the star and the star reached its destination. And then my favorite voice, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So you can see why the hymn writer did what they did. Well, then the baby didn't cry because this is a scene of joy. But that seems to be at odds with this other reality. And it's the reality that is pressed home forcefully in this episode. Matthew wants us to see that from the very beginning, Jesus is a, a man of sorrows. From the very beginning, he's the one who bears our grief. He's intimately acquainted with the groaning of this world, the groaning which sits at the heart of this world. That's the world that Matthew presents here, a world of sin and misery, languishing under the sinful rule of man. Herod makes another dramatic appearance. And we feel that, don't we? We're supposed to feel it. If you've been going to Sunday school, the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. There's something eminently mourn-worthy about the state of things, about this world of woe. We feel the ache of sin and misery, and it's no small comfort to us to hear God's word say, that's right, not all is well. And anyone who would tell you that there's nothing mourn worthy or that things are fine and you just need to reconcile yourself to the state of things, you're not seeing rightly, you're the problem in terms of your perception, well, they're not telling you the truth. 
Christ came to a world that is not well, that has as its heart a titanic ache. But there's comfort for us here because we also see that God was willing to send his son into such a state. That the beloved son did not shrink back from bearing our griefs. He didn't shrink back from the call to be a man of sorrow. He entered into the fullness of this world of woe for the specific purpose of bringing true comfort to hearts which otherwise will only ever groan and mourn the cosmic ache. Matthew continues to introduce Jesus to the world of woe to present this man of sorrows as the beloved son, the one who is the consolation of the world. So let's mark Matthew's three objects here. First, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is God's son. Second, he wants us to see that Jesus is the greater Moses. And then third, he wants us to see that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. First, Jesus is the true son. That's how verses 13 through 15 open and climax with the fulfillment formula. You can note that there's three fulfillment formulas that structure this, and they're actually all linked by a series of sounds. So this unit seems to hang together. Matthew says that Jesus is the true son, or better, Jesus is the true Israel. At several very important junctures in the Old Testament, Israel is called God's son. Exodus 4, 22 and 23, Moses tells Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Hosea alludes to the exact same episode in uh, Hosea 11.1, 1, which is what Matthew cites here. Out of, Israel, out of Egypt I called my son. What does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be the son? Well, here it means to stand in a certain relation to the father. And the relation that the son here stands to the father, as highlighted by Exodus 4, Hosea 11, is that the son is the unique object of the father's love. He's the unique object of the father's care. That's what Matthew wants us to see on display in this early tumultuous life of Jesus, that the Father is at work loving him and caring for him, providing for him, protecting him. Now, he extended this love and this care in a very real way to Israel of old, but here it's extended in the supreme, in the fullness to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true son. Hosea 11, 1 goes on to say, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And that's exactly what the father is going to declare openly, publicly about the son in Matthew 3 and Matthew 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
The Son is the unique, unqualified, unparalleled object of the Father's delight and love and care. And that's what we see. God's love and care is extended to his son in this scene. Here, the most powerful and ruthless man in Israel sets out to kill Jesus. Herod is not some random stranger. Herod is not an insignificant figure. Herod is terrifying. And he is a ruler and he is expending an inordinate amount of effort to kill the Son of God. And the effects of his efforts are dreadful, are they not? But he can't accomplish his goal. <laughs> and it's not for want of trying. It's not for want of power. It's not for want of influence. If you read about Herod's life, you know he was remarkably successful at eliminating people whom he perceived to be a threat. But not here. He can't kill a child because the father is protecting him. God warns Joseph. Joseph takes the mother and the child and they flee to Egypt. And Matthew doesn't make much of it, but it's not insignificant that God kept them in Egypt. He preserved them in Egypt. This would have been a strange land. This would have been a, an incredibly difficult trip. By no means... Sure that a, a there and back again safely journey would take place, but God guards their going out, their coming in, extending care to the son. Children, do your parents love you? Do your parents take care of you? Of course they do. They make sure you have food and clothes and a roof over your head. They make sure you get a good education. They pray with you and for you. They, they bring you each week to worship the true and living God, to hear about Jesus and the excellences of the forgiveness that come in him alone. Did you ever say thank you to your mom and dad? Did you say thank you, mom, for teaching me? Thank you, mom, for working so hard. Thank you, dad, for working so hard. Thank you, Dad, for taking me to school. It's good to thank our parents for the love and the care that they pour out. That's the saddest part of Israel's story. God was a father to them, caring for them so thoroughly, setting his love upon them unequivocally. But they were almost never thankful. They never acted the son, as it were. They acted the enemy. They ignored him entirely. And in that sense, in that important coordinate of what it means to be a true son, Jesus is the fulfillment. For not only was he the object of the Father's love, delight, and care, but he rendered that portion of the Son of love and trust and unflagging obedience to the one who is so eminently worthy. Did you notice that in the Exodus 4 passage? Moses tells Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. The rest of the passage in Hosea 11 details how God was a faithful father to Israel and how Israel refused to serve him. 
to love him, to obey him, but not Jesus. From the very beginning, this child's life is marked by costly obedience. Notice how Matthew goes out of his way to repeat verbatim in this narrative the exact fulfillment of the angel's instructions. Verse 13. The angel says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Verse 14, and Joseph rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. It's a lot of words, Matthew. <laughs> Why say the same thing twice? To highlight the promptness of the obedience. He even profiles that because the one element he adds is by night. Joseph had the dream, wasted no time, and fled. Again, this is not a small obedience. Egypt was a week's journey if it was a day. Egypt is still a pagan kingdom pulsating with the aura of oppression from of old. This was not an easy journey. This was not a small ask. Promptly, willingly, Joseph obeys and we're to see in Joseph's obedience a shadow of the most excellent and comprehensive obedience that the true son would render throughout the entirety of his life at great cost. For the son would walk a path not into the darkness of Egypt, but the darkness of the cross and the grave. What a pure delight the son must have been to the father. It's not only the object of his fatherly love by virtue of him just being the son, but as the son who rendered love and trust and obedience from the very beginning. And there's encouragement in that for us. The Lord Jesus Christ is the special object of the father's love. In the truest and the fullest sense, he is the beloved son, returning that portion of love and obedience which is good and right for a son to render unto the father. He is a most perfect and excellent delight for the father by everything the son was and everything the son did. How immensely precious the son is to the father, and yet the father gives him up for us to make us true sons. The staggering declaration of Jesus Christ as the unparalleled object of the Father's love casts a wondrous light on the fact that the Father willingly sent him to save sinners at great cost to himself. No wonder John says, in this way God loved the world, in this way, in this way. Search the world over for a more sublime example of the Father's love for a world of sinners, you will not find it anywhere other than in the sending of the beloved Son to stand in the stead of sinners. In your stead, my stead. We can also marvel at the love of the Son, the love of the Son for his Father, who is obedient unto death. Even death on a cross. For the descent to Egypt would not be the hardest thing that the son undertook in this mission to retrieve the wandering, the lost, the ruined, the wretched. The darkest descent would be going up upon a cross 
and then into the ground, remaining truly dead for three days to retrieve you and me from that domain of death. A greater exodus, a greater redemption, worked by a greater Moses, which is our next observation. Jesus is the greater Moses. That's what Matthew wants us to see in verses 16 through 18, but really throughout the passage. Notice how similar these events look to the beginning of Moses' life. Herod flies into a murderous rage at the thought that his kingdom is going to be threatened. And so he calls for the death of all the boys, two years and younger, not just in Bethlehem, but through the whole region. Children, do you remember what Moses' parents did right after he was born? Where did they put him? Do you remember? They put him in a basket and then in the Nile. Why? Because the cruelty of that king was exercising itself in this call to kill all the children. What a dreadful king. So Moses' parents, trusting the Lord and trusting their child to the Lord, put him in a basket, put him in a river, and in this way he fled. He was saved by the same care that here is on display in Jesus being cared for. Herod is a dreadful tyrant. He's put on par with Pharaoh of old. He is the sinful heart of man released from God's restraining grace. The world continues to languish under the rule of sinful man. Make no mistake. Now, make no mistake, some leaders are better than others. <laughs> some better, some worse. This is admitted, granted. The point is, woe to you if you're looking to earthly leaders for true comfort. Woe to you if you think salvation can be found among the ranks of these kingdoms of dust and ashes. Praise the Lord that not all earthly leaders look like Herod. Praise the Lord. Indeed, go out and vote for those who look the least like Herod. <laughs> but as you do, be sure you know where your only comfort is to be found in life and in death, under relatively good kings and under cruel tyrants. The rule of man fills the land with mourning, and it is a mourning that can find no earthly comfort. And that's what Matthew presses upon our hearts as he cites Jeremiah 31, Rachel weeping for her children, for they are not. Rachel's grief is an epic and comprehensive grief. In Genesis, if you'll recall, Rachel was a mother who fiercely and desperately desired children and then died in childbirth and was not granted the gift of watching them grow up. In Jeremiah, it's the grief of a mother who's forced to watch all of her children either killed or carried off, never to be seen again. This is the ache not of fruitlessness, not of barrenness. This is the ache of futility. This is the ache of joy tasted and immediately snatched away. This is the ache that sits at the heart of this world. The ache of a world east of Eden. It's a massive ache, and she weeps bitter tears. 
How would you comfort such a one? Where would you find a suitable comfort for such a morning? You can look the world over, and I assure you, you will not find it in this world or in the things of this world. It's not to be found in a regime change. Notice how one Herod gives way to another. It's not to be found in a relocation, <laughs> occupying another section of dust. Notice how the flight to Egypt really doesn't solve anything. It's not to be found in a reconstitution of the kingdom of dust and ashes. It's not to be found in the fleeting pleasures and comforts and distractions of a world that is fading away. Where is it to be found? It is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. In the Father's provision for a world that is groaning and aching under sin and misery, under curse and futility. It's to be found in the greater Moses who works a greater exodus, who brings God's people not out from underneath a tyrannous political regime but who brings God's people out from under the tyranny of the devil who has death and fear and sin as his allies. That's the true comfort. That's what Christ came to accomplish. But your only comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death, when mountains stand, when mountains fall, when kingdoms rise, when kingdoms topple, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who sheds his precious blood for my soul, who, who leads, who guides, who protects, and who promises to return. The state of this world of woe does and always will create an ache in our hearts the size of the world. Refuse to be comforted, beloved. Like Rachel, refuse to be comforted from the things of this world. Refuse to find comfort anywhere save the beloved Son. The provision from the Father who alone can comfort such an ache. But also know that when you find true comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the one who comforts you will be despised and rejected by this sad world. So we can consider last, Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Matthew brings the section to a close with one further fulfillment passage. He explains how Jesus, born in Bethlehem, came to live in the region of Galilee, which was in the north, Bethlehem being in the south. And not only the region of Galilee, but in the village of Nazareth. Joseph waits in Egypt until Herod dies. And then the angel tells him to return. We can mark with solemn satisfaction that Herod dies. Herod tried with all his strength to oppose the Christ of God. One of them suffered and was preserved and raised to glory. One of them suffered and then passed beyond all comfort. 
Herod's end was dreadful, if Josephus' account is correct. He truly went mad. I mean, he went insane at the end of his life. And not only that, his end was marked by grievous pain and physical agony. Not all the wicked come to such a dreadful end in this life. But be sure the end of all the wicked is dreadful beyond words, either in this life or the next. And you can also mark how obtuse the sinful heart of man. One tyrant meets a terrible end and then another tyrant arises and thinks, it will go different for me. My father was a cruel and treacherous king, but I shall meet a different end than he as a cruel and treacherous king. Truly, the sinful heart of man is deranged. And yet we can also note how even the deranged ravings of tyrants only accomplish exactly what God purposes. God's purpose was for his son to be born in Bethlehem, sojourn in Egypt, and be raised in Nazareth. And he was pleased to accomplish this in part by placing two wicked kings on two tiny temporary thrones. Now we see the ravings of deranged men and we do not see how it all works together at first glance, do we? We see the rise and fall of tyrants and think, how strange. <laughs> Seems almost random. <laughs> Why should one land have a leader who looks more like King Arthur and the other who has a leader who looks more like Caligula? Why should an Arthur give way to a Caligula? Can anyone penetrate this mystery? Do you know? Well, the one thing we can be sure of is that all of it is according to the plans and purposes of God <laughs> and that God is your heavenly father and mine in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you can find encouragement in that. But Jesus closes saying, Matthew closes saying, Jesus lived in Nazareth so that the words spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, on one level, Matthew's making a very basic statement, a very basic point. The one everyone knows as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Galilean, he was actually born in Bethlehem of Judea, just as the prophets foretold about the Messiah. That would be a practical problem during Jesus' life. Like, no, this guy's from Nazareth. This guy's from Galilee. We know that the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And Matthew says, well, it's actually a pretty remarkable set of circumstances, but Jesus of Nazareth actually is from Bethlehem, <laughs> just as the prophets foretold. But there's more to this title Nazarene than meets the eye. It's a really rich, elusive, not elusive, elusive, evocative title. He's a Nazarene in that he is the righteous branch of Jesse, as Isaiah foretells, foretells in Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot, a netzer, netzer in Hebrew, netzer, sounds like Nazarene, Nazar, Nazar, netzer. There's going to be a branch, a fruitful branch, and from that branch, fruit will be born. Galilee was actually an incredibly fruitful region, remarkably fertile. I have a bottle of Galilean wine at home. I'm very excited to drink it. <laughs> it's from the fruit of the vine surrounding the Sea of Galilee. I expect it will be excellent, but I do not expect that it will make me fruitful. 
perhaps glad of heart for an evening, but then that will fade. But this vine, the true branch, produces true fruit indeed in those who come to him by faith. Fruit that doesn't fade, fruit that endures and grows up into eternal life. He's also a Nazarene in that he is consecrated unto God from his very birth, just as Samson was in Judges 13. In Judges 13, the angel of the Lord tells Samson's mother that the child would belong to the Lord uniquely from the womb. He would be a Nazarite. Jesus is a Nazarene. Now, Samson fell woefully short of his beautiful ideal, yet he still worked deliverance by God's gracious design and in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon Samson to work these remarkable feats. Jesus fulfilled and lived up to the beautiful ideal and worked a far more wonderful deliverance by the power of the Spirit of God rests upon him. He's also a Nazarene in that he is the true watchman of Israel and the true keeper of the law. The verb guard, watch, and observe in Hebrew is Nazar. Israel knew many bad watchmen, notzer, bad kings. But they were bad ultimately, not because they didn't do their job, but because they were unrighteous. They didn't guard, Nazar, the law. <laughs> Jesus is the true watchman as the true righteous one, whoever only walks in paths of righteousness. It's amazing you could pack so much into one word. God's word is incredible. Stare at it. <laughs> but I don't think any of those are exactly what Matthew means when he says that the word of the prophets is fulfilled. In that he will be called a Nazarene. Rather, it brings this sad episode to a rather sad close. It means that even though he is the true son, the greater Moses, the unique object of the Father's love, the bringer of hope and life and light to this sad world, the only true comfort with a titanic ache at the heart of the world to whom he brings comfort, all of that being true, he's still going to be despised and rejected. Or perhaps because he's the true son, he is despised and rejected. To be called a Nazarene is to be despised and rejected, mocked and accounted less than nothing. Do you remember John 1? Nathaniel's response when Philip tells him they found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? This is a derogatory name. This is the anticipation of the heart that's going to despise and reject the one who came as the true son, who came as the greater Moses, who came to do what no one else can do to comfort and to gather. This isn't just a geographical problem that Matthew sets out to resolve. How can Jesus of Nazareth be the Messiah who's supposed to be born in Bethlehem? This is the darkness of man's heart that Matthew addresses. How can the Messiah be despised? 
by man. And Matthew says, this too is in fulfillment of the prophets. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. To be called a Nazarene is the precursor to being mocked as the king of the Jews and nailed upon a cross. The world continues to dismiss Jesus. Woe to our sad hearts. People don't use the derogatory Nazarene anymore. (laughs) Likely they miss that meaning. But he's still rejected, isn't he? In all sorts of ways. Still dismissed according to the fancies of man's dark delusions. Oh, that's Jesus of Nazareth. You don't need to pay attention to him. Not really. He's just a nice teacher. Listen to him or Buddha or Gandhi or whatever contemporary sage you've appropriated for yourself. Oh, that's just Jesus of Nazareth, a figment of the church's imagination made up by men long ago to make everyone feel a little bit better. Oh, that's just Jesus of Nazareth, just another fool killed for his ideas who didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. Oh, that's just Jesus of Nazareth, a massive disappointment because he wouldn't give us the kingdom we wanted. Insisted that our true problem wasn't the state of any given nation, but rather the state of our hearts before God. No need to listen to him. We know better. It's just Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to be called a Nazarene. But what does the father say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The world has never seen his equal. Listen to him. May he give us the hearts to do just that. Let's pray. Sanctify us by your word, O Lord. Your word is truth. Press it upon our hearts as only you can. Magnify your great purposes. Humble us, Lord, in the light of our sinfulness, that we may drink of the riches that are found only in Christ, calling out to the name that is above every name. Do these things, Father, for your glory and our good. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.